Jesus' passion for us in the book of John is to believe. Believing in him is life and life to the fullest. And God, sometimes in, in just the fog of war, the fog of chaos, of challenges in life with parenting, relationships, all the challenges, sometimes things just get foggy. And it's hard to even see the way forward. It's hard to know what the way forward is. And Jesus is as clear as he can. He is not hiding. As clear as possible, he's saying, he, me, I am the way, the truth, and the life, as we'll get to later in this book. I am the center. I am the source. If you believe me, you will have everlasting life. If you reject me, you will have everlasting destruction. You will forever be resisting me, and, um, and that is known as hell. Separation from God forever. And this book is serious. Like it is, we're seeing incredible things happen in the book of John, and it is talking about serious things, things that it's like we, we're not joking around here because he loves us too much to be playing games with us. He's actually giving us a well-lit path to walk down and have life, and life to the fullest. And uh, this book speaks of true times, it speaks of true places. It speaks of true people so that we can truly live for him. We can truly walk with him. We can truly find our life in his life. And this morning, uh, even with the trust that the Lord wanted, wanted that word to be in the forefront, um, let's go into John chapter 5. And um, we, we have over on the Connect table, there's some Bibles over there. If you don't have one, we will have the verses up on the screen. We also have right to the right of the Bibles, we, have, we call them scripture journals. And it's just the book of John where every other page is blank. So you can take notes and everything. We're going to be in this book for a long time. I don't know how long. I was joking with some pastors last night that we had dinner with. I was like, I think we'll be in this for like 25 years. I don't know. Uh, we won't be in there that long, but... I'm, I think we'll also find that when we're done, we're like, I wish that was longer because of all that the Lord has taught us, even in the first five chapters. Um, so we're in verse one. And can I pray again? And just because I don't want any of us to play at church. I want the Lord to really change us and form us this morning. So Lord, I just ask that as we dive into your word, that um, I, I am so inadequate to even communicate this word in a way that does justice to God himself being the author. Lord, the only way that any of us are going to truly be changed in this word is if you take these words which are yours and you place them into our souls. You do surgery to our life. You bring up things in our life that you're wanting to free us of, heal us from, and your word empowered by your spirit in this moment Lord, is, is capable to transform every one of us. No matter how long we've walked with you, no matter what's been done to us, no matter what we've done to others, um, Lord, we are here in this room right now encountering you, encountering your word together. And Lord, would you have your way? Would you open our eyes? Would you keep us focused? Would you, would you allow us to not form walls to push you away? 
but Lord, where you're inviting us to come running to you, uh, would we? And find our freedom and our joy there. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. All right, verse 1, John chapter 5. After this, everything that's come before this, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and he knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Up until now, everything in the book of John has been happening back to back to back. He went from here to here to here, um, the wedding feast, Nicodemus, John the Baptist, Samaritan woman. It's all happening in consecutive moments, in consecutive days. John, you see in verse 5, uh, or in verse 1 of chapter 5, says, after this. So break, break the chronology, break the sequence. This is happening sometimes later. Jesus goes back south again, down into Jerusalem from the north, and he's really close to the area of the temple. Where Jesus is, you can even see the temple over the wall, up the hill. You can see the temple. It's probably just a, a couple hundred yards from where Jesus is at at this time. He's by what's called the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate is one of the closest gates in the city wall to get to the temple. And it makes sense that they call it the sheep gate because when you're bringing sheep to be sacrificed at the temple, you're not going to want to parade them through town <laughs> and, and all of the, the things that could associate parading a whole bunch of sheep through town. You will bring them in at the closest point to where they will be a part of the temple sacrifice system and everything. And so the sheep gate is very close to the temple area, northeast corner of, of Jerusalem. And in this area, by these temple grounds, we learn that there is a large pool, very large pool. It has five colonnades that are around this pool. And one of the things that's interesting is that this detail, for centuries, this detail made some people think that the book of John was not written by John. And the book of John was not written by anyone who was familiar with first century Jerusalem. Because if it was, people would know there ain't no pool there. <laughs> and if you actually were familiar with Jerusalem in the first century and actually lived on the ground, you would never incriminate yourself with such a wrong detail. So for, for centuries, this was believed to be the case until, <laughs> until uh, the, the early 1900s, uh, it was actually discovered that there was an underground pool that was in that area. So it never, if you just look, you wouldn't have seen it, but they realized that there was an underground pool that was discovered in the early 1900s, but it wasn't until the 1960s that serious archaeological work was done and it showed a large pool. 
exactly in that area and showing proof, not just, hey, look, there's a giant pool there, but the way that the archaeologists found the pool showed that the early Christians believed Jesus did a miracle at that pool. So it's like, how would you know that? How would they know that by looking at rocks? <laughs> like, how looking at rocks do you know that early Christians believe that Jesus did an amazing miracle at that pool during his lifetime? And remember, this is like, at one time people are like, John must not have even written this thing. And now it's like, oh, we think it was found in such a way that even Christians believe that Jesus did a miracle at that pool during his lifetime. And here's how we know, one of the reasons we know is that um, it was illegal for someone to be a Christian for the first 300 years after the resurrection. So for 300 years, it's illegal to be a Christian. You can be, have a lot of bad things happen to you if you are found to be a Christian. Uh, then in the, about 300 AD, 320 AD, um, the emperor has this encounter with Jesus and then um, many people come to Jesus. They lift all of the, it's illegal to be a Christian. And then the emperor's mom gives her life to Jesus and is like sold out for Jesus. So the emperor's mom, with funding available to her, thanks to her son, the emperor's mom says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the Holy Land. And every place Jesus did something amazing, I'm going to build a church on top of it. Now, that's one of the reasons people love going to the Sea of Galilee. It was the only place where, where she was not able to build a church on top of the Sea of Galilee, right? It was just so big that the church would sink and it would be in the middle of the sea somewhere, but every, everywhere else. So what's crazy is archaeologists, if they find a 4th century church foundation, and you can tell by the architecture, this was a church it wasn't like a Roman temple. This was a church. Only churches had, had stuff like this. Then they'll find things that will make it very clear this was a church. That, that then they'll, they'll see like, oh, wow, there's a fourth century church built right here. She was told by the locals, this is where Jesus did this. And you might say, like, well, that was 300 years ago. Well, like if you go to Gettysburg and you're like, hey, where did this stuff happen? You know, it's like, well, hey, the locals for 300 years have said that was the battlefield right there, you know, and it's like there's no reason to really doubt it, you know, because they're actually like putting a lot into it and there's no reason to lie. Well, so what's crazy is when archaeologists found where, where people believe, where the scripture said that the temple or the pool was, they found the fourth century church there as well and its foundation. So, so a lot of crazy stuff. We've got a few, just a, a couple pictures here. So this first one is that's the actual um, that's the area. So it would take a little bit to explain that, but there is like a, the archaeologist did a drawing of when they, they do everything. The next, if you want to go to the next picture, this is what the pool looked like. And, uh, and it's two pools right next to each other. The temple is just, you can see uh, right at the top left corner, that's the, where the, the wall, where the temple is. So it's right there. And then the colonnade um, is this massive area. So it said there's five colonnades. So if you show the next picture, this is what a Roman colonnade looked like. So, there, so it was just this massive space that is, you know, that the wind can blow through and stuff, but it protects you from the rain. And so this, a space like this would have gone all around those two pools, and there were five of these that were built around. There were a couple walls, but five of them, and the archaeologists have said, yes, there are five colonnades here 
Absolutely, because they find the base of some of these pillars and stuff, and there were five, and what Scripture tells us here is that these were full of people who were, who were sick, crippled, injured. If you went there, you're, that's the people that you're finding there. One man has been lying there, and he has been crippled for 38 years. So th- that doesn't necessarily mean that he's been lying there for 38 years. Uh, maybe it does, but he has been crippled in a serious way where he can't walk for 38 years. And Scripture tells us he's been in the colonnade for a long time. A long time. And it's clear here that he is laying beside the pool, and Jesus asks him such an honest question, just as straightforward of a question as possible. Do you want to be healed? He doesn't take it for granted. And the guy could be like, of course I'm lying here. But he's like, do you want to be healed? The man likely doesn't know who Jesus is. We know who Jesus is. We've been walking through the book of John. This guy's been probably laying in the colonnade and might not have heard from anybody anything that Jesus has done up to this point. Jesus wants to hear from this man himself. Do you want to be healed? Look at his response in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm a-going, another steps down before me. So notice that this man doesn't actually answer Jesus' question. Jesus asks the most simple question, do you want to be healed? And his answer is, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And what, what we learn from this is somehow the belief had come up, and the reason that this area was full of people, somehow they had developed the belief that an angel once a week would come from heaven. This angel would descend from heaven once a week and would stir up the water, and the first person in the water would be healed. So all of these people are trying to be healed in that way. They're trying to find their healing in that way. They're waiting for this angel to come, and then they try to beat each other into the water. And that's, this guy has spent a long time there, maybe 38 years by the side of the water, looking to be healed this way, trying to be the first into the water. And when Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? He's like, I can't get in the water. That's his, that's his response. And it's this tr- like tragic hamster wheel that he is trying to find his healing. And this tragic hamster wheel, I think, that we can too. And what is amazing is that Jesus walks into the colonnade. Jesus shows up, he walks into the colonnade, and he's on a rescue mission. He's on a rescue mission even to rescue people who are trying to find a healing in an area where they'll never be healed. And Jesus is like, I'm going in. I am, I am going, and he, it seems like, is finding maybe the worst of the worst, the guy in the most tragic situation and asking him if he'd like to be healed. And I think we can be this way too. I think we can be so convinced, this is the way I'm going to find happiness. 
This is the way I'm going to find my joy. It's going to be here where I become whole. And if Jesus comes by and is like, hey, how's it working for you? Well, I'm, I, I still need that to happen. And just so fixated on this is how I get healed. That even when Jesus is like, would you like to be healed? Yeah, I'd like that. That right there, I would love that. Gosh, thank you. <laughs> they sensed I made a great point. Thank you. Feels good. <laughs> oh, man. So this way he's been trying to be healed. And I think, too, like maybe he's tried so many times that he's lost count. Maybe this guy doesn't even try anymore. Like something happens, the wind blows and the water ruffles a little bit, and people are like, oh, the angel just left. And then, and maybe he's just like, doesn't even try anymore. Just, just lays there, just been like, hey, this is just the way it's going to be. This is the way my life is going to work. I don't think he maybe even expects that he could ever be healed. And Jesus does something shocking. Uh, like Jesus could say, what Jesus could have said is, hey, I'll help you next time. Let's just sit here by the pool. And then, man, I'm going to throw you over my shoulder and we're jumping in like you and me. We're going to, like, I'm going to, or maybe he could give him a pep talk and be like, hey, man, gosh, you could do it. You know, you could do it. Let's get a little closer to the water, get to where you're almost falling in the water. And, man, get that desire again inside of you, you know, have that thirst for healing. And then maybe you can do it. Jesus doesn't give him any pep talk. Jesus doesn't even respond to what he said. It's like, I can't even get in the water. Look what Jesus says in verse eight. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Like, this guy is staring at the pool, you know, and Jesus is like, hey, get up and walk. I mean, the, the heart of Jesus to cut through all of the cultural junk, the heart of Jesus to come to this guy who's been at this pool for so long, believing it will be his answer, Jesus doesn't even say to him, be healed. He doesn't even mention healing to him. In his immeasurable power, he tells the man, get up, take your bed, and walk. Verse 9, at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. Now we have some new information. Now that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So this guy is instantly healed. Now, imagine some of you are nurses and are, are a lot more aware of just the body and everything, but imagine someone who has not walked in 38 years. Imagine what your muscles would be like. And maybe he had, maybe he's 38 years old. Maybe he has never, ever had his legs bear the weight of his body. And so Jesus is not messing around here 
when he heals him in such a thorough way that the guy's able to stand up and walk after 38 years of not being able to do that. I mean, this is not just like a, hey, I fixed everything, now go to physical therapy. This is a, like, you are completely and totally, radically healed. Then this interesting detail that just makes me mad, makes me wish it never happened, but in itself is Jesus' grace, because remember, where we're at in the book of John is Jesus has refused initially to heal people because he didn't want to just improve their life. He wants to rule their life because that's what they're designed for. And so Jesus has been very careful to say, like, what you really need is me, not just my tricks. You really need me. And then where this passage goes after he heals this guy so radically is they bring up the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. God created everything in six days. On the seventh day, creation was finished. God rested. God did not rest on the Sabbath because he was tired. He did not. He did not rest because he was tired. He rested because the work was finished. He wanted to show us like creation is finished. Now, we get tired, <laughs> and we don't rest because the work is finished. We rest because it is finished in Christ. And so we're able, even with a to-do list that's a mile long, to say, hey, God, you've got this. Um, I'm going to rest because I can rest in you even when the job is not finished. So God designed the Sabbath for us so that we could rest and, and he said, keep it holy, that our focus can be worshiping him, praising him, singing praises to God, uh, all of us being able to, to come together for that. And so we're in, as we're instructed to lay down our work once a week and spend that day resting, keeping that day holy, intentionally pursuing God with that day, all days, and especially in that day, living in his presence praising him. The seventh day is meant to be dedicated to the Lord in a super unique way. By the first century, man, the religious leaders had just twisted this in a frustrating way. They had twisted this fourth commandment and made this crazy long list of rules that are trying to spell out to a T what it means to do any work on the Sabbath. So here's an example. When I was, I spent about a month in Israel about 13 years ago, and one of the the days that we were there, we were in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, and um, and all the businesses are closed. Everyone is resting from their work, and they told us, "Hey, if you get on an elevator, and a Jewish person appears to get on the elevator with you, um, they are not able to push the button of what floor to go to." They will wait for you to push the button for them because they believe pushing the button is work and they would violate the fourth commandment if they push the button. And so, uh, so would you push the button for them? Um, because, you know, I wouldn't violate the fourth commandment, you know. And man, I am not, I'm not slamming um, modern day Judaism and the way that they're living out their faith, what I'm saying is as Jesus is approaching someone as the king of kings, 
the Lord of Lords, and as he is telling someone, remember, the temple is where you had access to God to praise him. The God of the temple, the true center of us worshiping and praising God, has just walked up to the sky and radically healed him. And they're like, what they aren't upset about is that Jesus healed him. They're upset that he picked up his mat. Picking up the mat he was laying on was work. And he violated the Sabbath by working, by picking up his mat because his legs worked and he was able to walk. Man, I mean, it's the grace of Jesus. He didn't say, I'm done, this is over. You guys find a different savior. It's his grace that he patiently even has a conversation and steps into this. So what happens is that the religious people start complaining. And at the end of verse 10, they're arguing with the man who picked up his mat. They say it's work, and that's what they bring up. And what the guy's response is, what his guy's response should be is, hello, I'm standing. I'm standing eye to eye with you. For decades you knew this was not possible. I'm now standing eye to eye looking at you, and you are bringing up that I'm holding my mat, and I might have violated the fourth commandment. That's what he should have done. What, what the man does, though, is says, hey, I don't even know the guy who told me to get up and walk. I don't even know who he is, and it's his fault. If you're going to blame fault, it's the guy who told me to pick up my mat. It's his fault. Who is the guy? He says, I actually don't know him. I don't know who healed me. And in all this argument, Jesus just slips away. I don't think Jesus slips away because he, he, he's like too afraid to fight. Um, he clearly isn't. He, he fights death and wins. Um, but I think this is just not his moment for this altercation. Like he's letting this play out. Now, verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. He has to remind the guy. See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. It's so crazy that Jesus has to remind him that after 38 years of being crippled, he is now well. Look, you are well. Jesus then tells him to sin no more. Man, people like commentators debate on like, what is he talking about? Like sin no more and all this stuff. I think just most clearly looking at the immediate context this guy is sinning like crazy by not worshiping Jesus. He's sinning like crazy by not, I mean, the official is like, Jesus heals the official son, and he's not Jewish or anything, and that guy just comes back and just falls on his face and, and believes, and, and believes even from a distance. The Samaritan woman, like the, she believes, and this guy is accusing Jesus Instead of worshiping Jesus, the official, remember Jesus' words to the official 
and his concern for the official was, I don't, I'm not in the business of improving your life. I'm in the business of ruling your life. And verse 15, tragically, this guy goes away and he tells the Jews, hey, I found the guy who violated the Sabbath. He turns Jesus in for violating the Sabbath. It's the reason that the Jews start persecuting Jesus. Jesus' answer to them in verse 17 is to let them know that they have this ridiculous view of the Sabbath. He lets them know that God the Father is working every day. Like when we pray on Sunday, we're not like, oh, we shouldn't pray because that would be work for God to hear our prayer. We shouldn't ask God to do, that would be work for God. Like Jesus is like saying, you need God to be working every day. Like the Sabbath is not that God needs to take a rest. The Sabbath is for humans to recognize we aren't God and we're limited. And he's like, the Father is working every day and I'm working every day, Jesus says. Jesus just throws down. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's letting them know the one you're arguing with is God. The one you're arguing with is the one who never stops working. And you're arguing with me that I'm working because I'm God. And you need me to be working because I'm God. You don't, if I take a day off, this world falls apart. And what I love here is that they get it. They get it. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They're like, you're saying you're God. Thank you. I'm glad I'm being clear here. I'm really glad I'm being clear in what I am saying. And what I love is that the woman at the well knows that he is God, and she loves it. She runs away saying, come, see the one who told me all that I've ever done. He's the one we've been waiting for. And now in Jerusalem, the city where people have access to God, they're now plotting to kill God, and the guy who was healed by Jesus is no better off. He's actually worse off meeting Jesus than if he would have never even met him. Because now instead of Jesus radically heals him, and now he's trying to kill him. And he's being a part of this mob that's trying to kill Jesus. And man, there's so much that we're going to talk about this week in community groups and I just want to let you know, like, community groups is where we, like, hash this out, where we go a little deeper into our lives, where we come around each other. So don't think that community groups are, like, that's where the elite Christians are, or, like, you got to kind of, like, go through this obstacle course before you're worthy to attend a community group or anything. Like, community group is where it's, like, how do I live this out? Why is this written for us? What does this mean for my life? And man, can we lock arms together and, and do this together? And we're always trying to find the, the best night that the, we're thinking of creative ways just to make it so that in the midst of busy schedules, like we need the time to be able to, to come back together and really lock arms together. And, and man, I encourage us to fight for that. And, and this week, I feel like there's so much where even in a sermon, it's going to take us a lot to, to hash this out, put flesh on this for each of our lives. But a few questions for us this morning in light of the events on John 5. A few questions for us. First, are you sitting by a pool? What pool are you sitting by? Okay, now you might automatically be like, well, I'm physically obviously not by a pool. That would be marvelous, you know, but um, 
But you might even say, well, like, metaphorically, I'm not sitting by a pool. I would just make that a prayer. God, am I sitting by a pool? Lord, is there some relationship, some situation, some status where I am so convinced if I just was able, I would be whole? If I was just able to be able to have this relationship, if I was just able to have this come through, if I was able just to, to break through when everybody else is having it and I was able to have it too, that would be healing. That would, be, that would make me whole. And man, I don't know what that is, but I think there's a good chance that Jesus would whisper in our ear something that's a pool. It might not be the center of our lives, but it might be deeply affecting us that Jesus is, um, is saying, hey, there's a cultural thing that you've bought into believing if I just had access to that pool, I would be healed and I would be whole. What pool are we sitting by? Jesus, am I sitting by a pool? Is it, is it financial? Is it relational? Um, is it something through my kids? Is it something through work? that I'm just putting all of my hope in, that, that that will bring me wholeness and that will make me happy. What pool are we sitting by? Then second, do you want to be healed? I love that Jesus asks, like he asks the man that, and I think he would ask each of that us that. Like, do you really want to be healed? And you're like, well, I'm, I've been trying to get this job, of course, trying to get this job. I think you'd be, no, look at me. Just answer me, like, like, do you want your marriage to be healed? Not, well, we've tried everything. He is very powerful. And can we be honest to say, do you want to be healed? And even ask him, like, okay, Lord, would you sh- if, if there is any area of, of massive growth in my life or any area of just growth because he's wanting to make us look more like him, and I think this this passage is such a warning to all of us, like to, to encounter Jesus and to Jesus to do a radical work in our life and for us then to live no better off when he is wanting to rule our life because that's the way we're made. So what pool are we sitting by? Do you want to be healed? And then third, will we complain or confess? Will we complain or confess? If Jesus is, is fully changing our lives, in charge of our lives, I think he could, we can be like, hey, man, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. You know, some people talk about, like, like get in the passenger seat of the car. And Je- Jesus, go ahead. You got the wheel. Take the wheel. You know, whoa, except for there. <laughs> it's close enough to grab the wheel because, uh, yeah, I don't know if you were, you were going that way. We don't go that way. We go that way. So, okay, take the wheel. Oh, gosh. You know, but it's, it's not like, and I think that this is where these people are at. It's like, hey, do whatever you want, but just don't do it on the Sabbath. Because that's uh, like, that's my thing. Or that's, uh, we've, got, we've got all sorts of laws around that. But when we confess him, as the one, as the anointed one, as the savior of the world. If we confess him, we, we, we are more open to not be complaining, saying that, man, he can truly free us. He can truly heal us. He can truly save us. 
if he even wants it to be on the Sabbath, if he wants it to be during a track meet, if he wants it to be in a community group, it doesn't matter. He's in charge. There's no wrong time for him to work when he's working. And with the car analogy, um, uh, some pastors from, from a couple generations ago were using this analogy and where, where they felt the best, the, the best place for us is to actually crawl into the trunk of the car of our life shut the door and whisper through the keyhole, take, take us wherever you want, Jesus. It's your life now. Do whatever you want. You're in charge, and I trust you, and you're going to take us way better than I could ever dream. For him to be in charge might mean that he's cutting through a bunch of religious garbage in our life that we thought we had to have centered on. And he's like, no, you center on me, not this religious garbage he can cut through stuff that we've even grown to believe is true, and it's just not true. Who's in charge? Is, am I in charge, or is he in charge? And all of the people in John 5 saw themselves in charge. They saw themselves as the judge, jury, executioner. And they didn't see Jesus as the one worthy of all of our worship, all of our praise. So, man, for each of us, would we let him be the center? Would we let him be in charge? It'll be the most alive we've ever been. And I I think a very tangible, beautiful way that we can do that is through communion. Communion is his idea to commune with him, to come to him, to be like, I want to be healed. Jesus, you are the center of my life. I desire for you to be the center of my life, not my idea of how I've constructed a happy life, but his way that he has for for us. And so what I would encourage you here is that if if you have yet to put your trust in Jesus as your savior, um, there aren't a lot of, of like warnings in scripture about coming here without Jesus being your savior. But what I would encourage you is don't come here, come to Jesus. Give your life to him. And, and that, man, you could raise your hand, you could walk down an aisle, um, that, that can reflect your heart. But really what, what he has allowed for us to do is to say the word he uses, believe. Believing him to be the savior of your life. Realizing that, that you our lives, our lives, you don't have to teach a kid to sin. Each of us are born in a way that it is very clear that, that our hearts drift away from God. And that separates us from him. And we could try our hardest to get back to center. But what he did instead is said, I'm going to give you the best I have. I'm going to send my son. And he will live his life in your place. The penalty that separated us, he will pay for that on the cross. He will conquer death, be alive and well, and when we give our life to him, we find our life in him. And that is salvation, that is, that is living a life centered on him. And so instead of coming to the table right now, I would encourage you, come to Jesus. The warnings in scripture are for those who have come to Jesus. Jesus is your savior, don't rush to the table. He may show a pool that you're laying by. And by his grace, he's not like, well, now go and do penance for 30 years. But instead, you can say, forgive me. Thank you for opening my eyes to this. 
change me. As far as the east is from the west, I'll remove sin from you. And that's his grace towards us. That's his power to us. So let's not rush to the table, but let's come to the table. And the way that we'll do it is come. We have a cup within a cup. We have wine or juice. Obey your conscience there. We'll have, uh, and just take a cup and then separate those and you'll find the bread and, and the wine or the juice. And then we'll remain standing and we'll take it as family together. So let's come. Let's respond to him.